we are going to move into a time of study. Um, this morning we're going to finish John's epistles. So it's third John this morning. Uh, and then Lord willing, next week we're going to move into the book of Jude. Um, the intention is to try and do that in one week, but there's a lot in Jude, so we'll see how it goes. Uh, and then once we've done that, we're going to move into a study of the book of Daniel. Now, typically we'd go through the New Testament, we'd do Revelation, but we did Revelation a few years ago and all the studies and the notes are all online. So if people want to look at that, then uh, it's there to go through. But uh, Daniel obviously touches many themes uh, that are so applicable to our day. Um, speaking about this one world government uh, that is right on the horizon now. And uh, of course, I'm sure most of us are aware that coronavirus itself has been a big mover in getting things ready, set up for the one world government to start to, to come into play. And um, it's incredible. I was listening to a commentary last night and uh, the, the teacher was saying how, um, you know, how long would it take to bring in the, the, the government of Antichrist? Um, and he said, well, if we look at what coronavirus did, then 30 days would be sufficient for the whole world to comply, to agree to whatever dictates and demands are set if the conditions are right. Um, so we've seen how quickly things can change. And all of this just reminds us how close we are to the Lord's return. So we should be lifting up our heads uh, and getting excited about these things. But for this morning, as I said, we're going to go into a study now of uh, John's third letter. Uh, this is a letter that John writes to his friend, to Gaius. Uh, it's the second uh, of John's personal letters that we have. Of course, the previous uh, letter that we looked at uh, is the letter that John writes, we believe to Mary, uh, although a lot of commentators seem to miss that possibility. There's so much within the letter of Second John that would seem to indicate that Mary was indeed the recipient. Um, but this one certainly written to his friend and would seem to be his son in the faith. Gaius seems to be somebody that John had brought to know the Lord and is clearly a brother in Christ. Uh, the theme, well, there's a number of themes you can draw out of this. Certainly encouragement is one, and it's good that we encourage each other. John here encouraging his friend, um, but also uh, discerning truth from error. Uh, we'll unpack that and we'll look at it uh, a number of times as we go through. Certainly truth is one of the key words that's used in this letter six times in just 13 verses. It's actually the shortest book or letter in the New Testament. Uh, although if you look Second uh, John, the way it's uh, given to us has 13 verses and Third John has 14 verses. In the Greek, actually, Third John is the shorter of the two. So it's, a, it's the shortest, smallest letter we've got. But that's not to say it's without uh, impact, without uh, content. There's a lot in here as we'll see as we go through we'll see there's three types of love that are mentioned here there's the love between brothers it's a very personal thing john writing to somebody who holds uh, very dear to his heart then there's the love for the brethren in general we've been looking a lot about that in john's uh, previous writings that we've been going through but then is the, the love of self. Now, this isn't a good thing. It's self-aggrandizement, uh, you know, lifting up yourself, promoting yourself. Uh, and we'll talk uh, much about that as we go through in a while. And really, that is motivated by fear and by insecurity. You know, but we're told. And the first song this morning uh, that Sarah led us in in the time of worship, that God has not given to us a spirit of fear but of power of love and a sound mind. You know, if we know who we are in Christ, we're not going to fear 
other people. We're not going to fear situations or circumstances, whoever may come or may go. Um, so it's really important that we have our relationship rooted in Christ himself. You know, knowing who we are is so, so important. And this is the, the theme for the ladies study uh, in a, a week and a bit's time. And um, for the ladies are going to be looking at this topic, you know, as I said, you know, God hasn't given us a spirit of fear. We shouldn't be afraid. But, you know, if we are all about self, well, actually, fear will creep in. Well, because we'll be frightened of losing what we've got. We'll be frightened of losing position or recognition or whatever else from the world. But, you know, if we know who we are in Christ, we'll not fear others. You know, we'll not need to defend ourselves or our position or our ministry or whatever else. You know, we're not going to fear what man may say. And that's the verse that Pete shared this morning, our verse for the week. So, again, all these things dovetailing together this morning. You know, if we are in Christ, if we're in his will, and of course, that is the key. It's not to be in our own will, but to be in his will. We're going to know that he's called us, that he's able to make us stand, that he can sustain us. He provides for us. He guides us. He protects us. And he deals with all who would be against us. You know, I was going to put all a load of scripture references again these against these verses or these these statements there, but actually, I reckon I could probably find a dozen verses for each of those uh, things that are there. You know, so many verses that say that God has called us. You know, He's chosen us and appointed us that we bear fruit. You know, He makes us to stand. You know, because He is God, He's able to do that. Even if we fall, He can lift us up again. He sustains us. Many verses in scripture speak of that. He provides for us again, that he guides us continually. You know, as long as we're looking to him and he protects us. Well, certainly we've seen that uh, in our own lives. We certainly see it throughout scripture. So many examples. And again, uh, he will deal with all who would be against us. And that's something that we don't need to worry about because, you know, the battle is not ours. It's his. The battle is the Lord's. And we need to understand that we're not fighting this battle. We're not trying to win converts to our point of view or our opinions. We're not trying to win people over to ourselves. If anything, all we want to do is just win people for Jesus Christ. I want to read you this letter um, from the Living Bible, uh, the paraphrase. Uh, now, as I said many times before, um, the Living Bible, as many other so-called translations, are really commentaries. Uh, and if we treat them as such, they can be very helpful. Um, it's not the Bible in itself, because what we've got here is somebody has taken what the Bible says, what the original text says, and they've reinterpreted it into their understanding. But sometimes that can be very helpful just to get a, a, a picture. So in that regard, I just want to read this to you. So we get from John the Elder to dear Gaius, whom I truly love. Dear friend, I'm praying that all is well with you and that your body is as healthy as I know your soul is. Some of the brothers traveling by have made me very happy by telling me that your life stays clean and true and that you are living by the standards of the gospel. I can have no greater joy than to hear such things about my children. Dear friend, you are doing a good work for God in taking care of the traveling teachers and missionaries who are passing through. They have told the church here of your friendship and your loving deeds. I'm glad when you send them on their way with a generous gift. For they're traveling for the Lord and take neither food, clothing, shelter, nor money from those who are not Christians, even though they have preached to them. So we ourselves should take care of them in order that we may become partners with them in the Lord's work. 
I sent a brief letter to the church about this, but proud Diotrephes, who loves to push himself forward as the leader of the Christians there, does not admit my authority over him and refuses to listen to me. When I come, I'll tell you some of the things he's doing and what wicked things he's saying about me and what insulting language he's using. He not only refuses to welcome the missionary travellers himself, but tells others not to, and when they do, he tries to put them out of the church. Dear friend, don't let this bad example influence you. Follow only what is good. Remember that those who do what is right prove they are God's children, and those who continue in evil prove that they are far from God. But everyone, including truth itself, speaks highly of Demetrius. I myself can say the same for him, and you know I speak the truth. I have much to say, but I don't want to write it, for I hope to see you soon, and then we'll have much to talk about together. So, goodbye for now. Friends here, send their love, and please give each of the folks there a special greeting from me. Sincerely, John. That's the letter, and that's no doubt the way that Gaius would have received it. That's the idea behind this. But let's break it down now. Let's go through uh, looking at each verse and see what we can draw out of this and how these things also apply to us. Well, going back into verse one, uh, we read the elder unto the world, beloved Gaius, whom I love in the truth. You know, John, as we've noted before, doesn't introduce himself by name, not in John's gospel, not in his letters. In fact, the only time we see John using his own name is actually in Revelation. And it's almost as if he writes in Revelation because of the, the subject matter and everything else. He's writing as somebody to say, look, you know me, you know, the testament that I'm giving is true. You know, I, John, was in Patmos, for example, he tells us uh, in Revelation 1.9. So uh, that's the only place John actually introduces himself by name. Now, there's actually uh, three Gaiuses mentioned in the New Testament. Uh, we have one mentioned in Acts 29, who was a resident in Macedonia. In Romans 16.23, we have an individual who was in Corinth by that name. And in Acts chapter 20, verse 4, there's a man by the name of Gaius who lived in Derby. Uh, of course, Paul encounters these on his missionary journeys. Now, we don't know if this individual is any one of those. And to be honest, it doesn't really matter. Um, but clearly, he was somebody who was well known. Um, if you note the, the word there, uh, the elder unto the well-beloved. And that implies that it wasn't just John that had this affection for this individual. Uh, he was well-loved within the Christian community at that time. But then John says, whom I love in the truth. You know, there are those whom we love and we may say we love people uh, in a, a, a friendly sense, um, the phileo love um, that we have, that friendship. Um, you know, there's people we admire, the people that we look up to, uh, there's people who support us or encourage us. So we, we can speak of loving them in that sense. But the relationship here is more than that. This is a relationship that is built on Christ. You know, and there is nothing more precious than friendship with a believer who stirs your heart toward Christ. Not just stirs your heart, but stirs your heart toward Christ. You know, someone with whom the central topic of conversation is Jesus. You know, that's the key. To find someone like that, it is such a blessing. You know, someone who gets it and shares your passion for Jesus Christ. Someone who makes you want to be more like Jesus and I hope and pray that you have people in your life that are like that. If you haven't, find someone that every time you are with them, they just stir your heart, encourage you to love Jesus more. You know, and I've been blessed in my life. I've had a number of people who they've just been such special friends. Uh, and it's a really wonderful relationship. 
I had a friend uh, back in Deal uh, who's now gone to be with the Lord. Uh, he was a physiotherapist. Uh, he was blind. Uh, and I used to just go and spend time with him. And we used to sit and we read scripture together. I would read uh, and he would listen, obviously, being blind. He couldn't read himself, but he knew scripture well. Uh, and we used to just talk for the entire time. We just for, for a period of time, once a week, I would just go and see him. And it was such a blessing. We would just talk about the things of the Lord and encourage each other. You know, and you need someone in your life like that, someone that can stir you on and then you can also reciprocate. Well, that's the kind of relationship we've got going on here between John and Gaius. There's something really special. They, they, their love was based upon Jesus Christ. John goes on and says, beloved, he uses that expression a number of times in his writings, but beloved, I wish above all things that you may prosper and be in health even as they saw as I soul prospereth now this is an interesting statement it's almost flipped on its head you know rather than saying you know I you know I hope that um you know your, your soul prospers even as you are in health no it's the other way around you know I'm praying that you be in good health even as I know your soul prospers and you know just reminding me of that great song uh, we sing the hymn it is well with my soul you know that really is the most important thing you know physical health and well-being are great and of course we all you know want to have those things uh and it's good to be physically healthy but it's better to be spiritually prosperous than to be physically healthy you know and let's just consider what jesus said on the subject in matthew 18 verses 8 to 9 jesus says wherefore if thy hand or thy foot offend thee cut them off and cast them from thee it is better for thee to enter into life halt or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet be cast into everlasting fire and if thy eye offend thee pluck it out and cast it from thee it is better for thee to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes be cast into hellfire I mean, jesus doesn't pull any punches jesus makes it really clear that our spiritual condition is of infinitely more value than our physical state you know that's why it's such a, a joy when we hear of people coming to the lord because you know whatever their physical state you know that's secondary to the spiritual the spiritual is the most important thing because that is the eternal state you know if you were to and i've seen this done um you know you get a, a long piece of rope as you know as long as you could you could think of you know and, and you just color just a little band you know to kind of a millimeter just a small pen width around the end in red red pen or red ink or something and then you look at the whole length of the rope. Well, that bit that you've colored in, that little bit at the end is now. This is what we're going through on earth. The rest of it stretches off into eternity. So much of our focus is on the here and now. And yet, in reality, so much of our lives are the eternal and not the here and the now. Abraham, if you remember wasn't content or wasn't interested in putting down roots, uh, building wonderful, great properties and uh, acquiring all sorts of things on earth. He was looking for a city whose builder and maker is God. He knew there was something much better and much greater than the things of this world. Paul tells us as well that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that shall be revealed in us. You know, so scripture is really clear on this subject. It's not wrong to pray for and to seek spirit, uh, physical health. Um, but this verse is not saying, uh, and as some people have tried to teach, um, that every Christian should be there for healthy, wealthy and prosperous that's not what the Bible says at all. No, what we should be is healthy and prosperous spiritually. And if that 
overflows into our physical life, and that's a great thing. In fact, there are correlations between our spiritual condition and our physical condition, but we don't need to make too big a thing of that. The important thing is that we are spiritually right with God, because that is the thing that has most impact. Interestingly, David in Psalm 119, we believe it's David, it's not actually authored with no title on it, but uh, from the writing, it seems to be his psalm. Uh, verse 67 and 68. 68 is a verse we know well, and I quote many times, but 67 is interesting because there we read, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now have I kept thy word. Thou art good and doest good. Teach me thy statutes. Now, certainly with David, we know that David went through all sorts of different types of afflictions, you know, and we would all love to be in perfect physical health all the time without afflictions. But David actually says, you know, it's a good thing that we struggle sometimes because by struggling, it brings us into a place that we get to see God in a way that otherwise we wouldn't have done. So we should rejoice. Even when we go through physically difficult times, yes, again, it's good, it's right, it's proper to pray for good health, but that's only secondary to our spiritual condition. David Guzik made the comment, he said, many Christians will be desperately ill if their physical health was instantly the same state as their spiritual health. It's quite an interesting statement, really. You know, just think about your own spiritual condition this morning. You know, is your spiritual condition better than your physical condition? Because it should be see chuck nisler again i was looking through his uh, commentary and notes on this and he was saying that you know physical health is important but physical health is made up of a number of factors it's nutrition it's having a good diet it's made up of having exercise if you don't exercise and everything starts to atrophy you need exercise cleanliness of course is very important proper rest also many studies have been done i'm sure all familiar with how important it is to rest and get proper sleep and of course the discipline of a balanced life well, that's the physical, but you see how that translates to the spiritual as well, because spiritually nourishment, again, nutrition, we need the word of God to feed us, to strengthen us physically or spiritually. Uh, you know, and what, what digestion is to the body, meditation is to the soul. That godly workout, we're to exercise ourselves towards godliness, uh, is what uh, Paul tells, tells Timothy. Now, of course, with this example we're looking at this morning, Gaius, of course, read it, meditated on God's word. He delighted in it and he practiced it daily. And that's the idea. We need to make these things a regular part of our life. We need to keep ourselves clean, just as physically you clean yourself, you wash, you shower. So important. Well, spiritually, we need to keep ourselves clean, remain unspotted from the world, we're told. Avoid the contamination and the pollution of the world. And then, of course, we're also to rest. Just as physical rest is important, so spiritual rest is important. And fellowshipping with the Lord. There are many scriptures that deal with these type of themes. Verse 3 goes on and says, For I rejoiced greatly when the brethren came and testified of the truth that is in thee, even as thou walkest in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. And this must have been a lovely thing for John to be able to write, knowing that this individual, seemingly John, was from the comments he makes here, uh, was uh, responsible or had some involvement in Gaius coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, he speaks of him as his children and so on. Uh, and he says, you know, I have no greater joy than to hear my children walk in truth. Well, 
I don't think there can be a, a greater joy for a parent than to see their children walking in truth. You know, it's been something that's been such a blessing to my heart to see my own children growing up and asking questions about the Lord. You know, and there's been occasions I've walked into their room and they've sat there reading their Bible. Uh, that's such a blessing. You know, something that I've not told them they have to do, but they see the benefit, their understanding, they want to know things of God. And the same, of course, is true of spiritual children. There may be people that you've had the opportunity to lead uh, to the Lord. Well, it's great when you get to see them growing as well. It's not just about being born again. Of course, that's so important. But as we commented last week, that's part of the journey. Of course, it's the vital part that we have that relationship and our sin is paid for, that we have that guarantee of eternal life. But then we go through that process of sanctification being set apart. And it's a wonderful thing if you've brought someone to the Lord to see them growing in knowledge and grace. But let's just flip this on its head for a second, because the fifth commandment tells us this. It says, honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. Now, of course, you know, not all of us have got Christian parents, Um but if you just for a second, just consider the whole reality of that it's an honor. We are to honor our father and mother. And what is the greatest honor that we can show to our parents? Well, physical parents or spiritual parents is that we are walking with the Lord. I know in my own case um, from speaking uh, different times to my mum and dad that I know that as parents, they are so proud and so pleased that. My family, my, my brother Sim, my sister Katie and myself are walking with the Lord. And we, we thank the, the Lord for this so, so repeatedly because it is such a blessing. Uh, but it's an honor and a great privilege for parents to see their children walking with the Lord. Well, what about you? Every one of you has parents. I mean, that's, that's true. I think you'll agree. You know, you all have parents. The greatest honor that you can show them is that you walk with the Lord, that your life is following God's commands, God's rules, God's laws, God's way, that we walk in the way. That's a great honor to your parents. Now, again, I appreciate that not everybody has Christian parents and those non-Christian parents may not appreciate your walk with the Lord, but your spiritual parents will. You know, we all have parents in one sense, either physical or spiritual, that care about our development, and our growth. So we owe it to them to walk with the Lord ourselves. So this goes both ways. Not only is it a joy to see your offspring, as it were, walking with the Lord, spiritual or physical, but the other way around, you owe it to your spiritual parents, your physical parents, if they know the Lord, to honor them by walking with the Lord, making sure that your walk is pure and clean and true. And note also from this uh, commandment that you're the one that receives the blessing if you do this. Verse five goes on and says, beloved, thou doest faithfully whatsoever thou doest to the brethren and to strangers. You know, what a great testimony that is. Proverbs 20 verse 6 says, most men will proclaim everyone his own goodness, but a faithful man who can find. Someone who's honest, someone who's truthful. And it's said of Gaius here by John, that he's been told that he's faithful in whatever he does. Whatever he's been given to do, whatever he sets his hand to do, he's faithful to the brethren, but also to strangers. There's a great love uh, evident uh, in this man's life. It goes on and says, which have borne witness of thy love before the church, whom 
If thou bring forward on their journey after a godly sort, thou shalt do well. And it's really this verse six is an encouragement to continue to show hospitality to visiting preachers or, or believers that were passing through. Clearly Gaius would uh, put them up, he'd look after them and treat them well and then send them on their way. And John is saying it's a good thing that you do that. Uh, is we should encourage and bless and strengthen each other in that sense. He says, because that for his name's sake, as for the Lord's sake, they went forth. And these people have stepped out in ministry. They've left homes and family and all the things that Jesus said we should leave behind. And they've gone out taking nothing, it says, of the Gentiles. So although they've gone out to minister to unbelievers, they've not gone to take reward from them or to get payment for them for their ministry. They've given freely. And so John says to Gaius, we therefore ought to receive such that we might be fellowshippers to the truth, sorry, fellow helpers to the truth. You know, again, many have given up all for the sake of the gospel and it's right that we support them. You know, most men will proclaim everyone his own goodness, uh, but a faithful man, we just saw a moment ago, who can find. And it's good that we are faithful in this service. You know, John wasn't above this. Notice he says, we therefore. He doesn't exclude himself from this, that John sees himself as having this responsibility also. And we should do all that we can to further the preaching of the gospel. Now, you may be in a position that you can support ministries financially. You may be able to do it in practical ways, but we could all certainly do it through prayer. But whatever we do, we should be supporting those that are stepping out, that are going out into this world, that are proclaiming the gospel, that we can be fellow helpers to the truth. So we all have this mandate. So it applies to guests and it equally applies to each one of us. David Guzik makes this comment. He says, in that day, Christian travelers in general and itinerant ministers in particular were greatly dependent upon the hospitality of other Christians. John knew that when Christians assist those who contend for the truth, they become fellow workers for the truth. He went on and said also, this also explains why John would pray for the prosperity of Gaius. Uh, He used his resources in a godly way, being a blessing to others. If God blessed him with more, others will be blessed more also you know and there's a really important point there because although that opening uh, verse speaks about or the second verse speaks about uh, him prospering and so on you know John's praying for that clearly what Gaius was doing everything he was receiving he was giving out again it's that analogy we've used a number of times with the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea Sea of Galilee has the Jordan water flowing in and it continually flows out and it's full of life it's teams with life round about and within but then that water gets down to the Dead Sea and it just flows into the Dead Sea and of course the Dead Sea is dead you know whatever we get whatever blessings we get from the Lord we are to use for the Lord let them be given out don't try and hold on to things yourself um that will never end well but then we get to verse 9 and John says this I wrote unto the church but Diotrephes who loves to have the preeminence among them receives us not wherefore if I come I'll remember his deeds which he doeth prattling against us with malicious words and not content therewith neither does he himself receive the brethren and forbids them that would and cast them out of the church i mean clearly there's a problem going on this individual uh Diotrephes has kind of set himself up as the leader of this local congregation and as local ministers and preachers and teachers were coming through he wouldn't let them stay with him he wouldn't let them come and teach in his church you know it was his church he wasn't allowing anybody to step in there 
and even people then that wanted to support them, uh, like I guess Gaius would have been amongst that group, he then tries to put them out of the church. Uh, clearly, he had a problem. David Guzik makes this comment. He says, John, the apostle of love, publicly rebuked Diotrephes by name. But he did not act outside of love. Instead, he followed the clear command of Scripture. Uh, Romans 16, verse 17 actually tells us, Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offences, contrary to the doctrine which you have received, uh, which you have learned, and avoid them. Now, so there's a clear mandate that people that act this way, that are acting contrary to Scripture, uh, we avoid them. And we, those that cause divisions, um, they're to mark them is what uh, Paul says. And John here doing exactly that. Uh, and he goes, and the examples of the other apostles, Peter also, sorry, Paul also uh, in Second Timothy highlights a similar situation to this. So this individual uh, clearly had a problem. <clears throat> Seemingly, the problem is based around insecurity. He was concerned about his own position. He was concerned about allowing others in that might challenge his own leadership or the things that he wanted to teach. You know, and that, of course, is going to happen if your calling came from you. Some years ago, um, when I was back in Kent, we had a situation. There was a, a New Zealand evangelist by the name of Barry Smith, and I got to meet Barry and uh, the family. Lovely, wonderful man of God, um, and he had a real ministry, really passionate about teaching people about the Lord's return, uh, and went round the the world just just preaching and teaching and sharing and bringing people to the Lord. And multitudes of people came to the Lord through his ministry. We had an opportunity, there was an event that was planned uh, for a Saturday night. We'd hired a local leisure centre and we had hundreds of people come from all over the area. People were coming down from uh, London on coach loads and so on uh, to come and hear him speak. The following evening, the Sunday evening, he was supposed to be speaking at the local Anglican church, which at the time uh, was where my parents were going. And the minister of the Anglican church came along on the Saturday evening to the leisure centre uh, sat there, plonked himself right in the middle at the front in kind of a act of humility. Um, and at the end of the evening, stood up. And as people were disappearing and, and just going home, there was a number of people left around. And he, he just blurted out and said, I'm not going to have that man speak in my church. Well, that, of course, created a bit of a problem because there was a number of people that were all planning to come the following evening, again, on coaches, some of them from distances, um, to come and hear Barry Smith teach. Uh, well, as it happened, a local Baptist minister was there uh, who intervened and said, I'm more than happy. Uh, in fact, I'll never forget. He actually confronted this Anglican minister and he said, I may not agree with everything Barry Smith says, but I certainly agree with him more than I agree with anything you say. Which comes a bit of a put down to this Anglican minister. But because the Anglican minister made that statement very much like geographies here, that I'm not going to have him speak in my church. And again, it's the problem of pushing yourself to the floor, uh, to the to the fore, having your own agenda. You know, and it highlights the danger of self. Chuck Misler, in his commentary, again looking at Diotrephes, speaks of people who are self-opinionated, self-exalting rather than self-effacing, self-made, self-sufficient, self-willed, self-satisfied, self-confidence in in a word in the flesh. And that's the real problem. You know, I've heard people speak to me before and speak about, you know, um, are you ordained? And I know what they mean by that question. But really, the issue is not are you ordained by man, but are you ordained by God? 
Have you set yourself up and got a man to ratify that? Or have you been called by God to the ministry that you are exercising? <clears throat> sort of reads this to you. This is from Oswald Chambers. He said, God designed human nature for himself. Individuality debases human nature for itself. The characteristics of individuality are independence and self-assertiveness. It is the continual assertion of individuality that hinders our spiritual life more than anything else. God wants to bring you into union with himself, but unless you are willing to give up your rights to yourself, he cannot. Let him deny himself, obviously quoting Jesus' words. Deny his independent rights to himself, then the real life has a chance to grow. You see, again, whose agenda is it that you're looking to promote? Is it your own agenda? In which case, you'll be concerned about others that come along. You won't want to allow them to have a voice. You won't want to allow them to speak either into your life or to others around you. Again, Oswald Chambers says this, The disposition of sin, and I thought this was quite insightful, is not immorality or wrongdoing, but the disposition of self-realization. Let me just paraphrase what I think Oswald's trying to say here. The problem really is not being immoral or doing wrong things. The real problem, the root of the problem we have is that self-realization. And it's as Oswald Chambers put, I am my own God. It starts all the way back in the Garden of Eden. This disposition may work out in decorous morality or indecorous immorality, but it has the one basis my claim to my right to myself. In other words, you might be a good person in terms of the world's perspective, or you might be a bad person. That's kind of like mute argument, because the real issue is your claim to your right to yourself. And that is what the Lord repeatedly through scripture calls us to give up, to give up the right to ourselves, to allow the Lord to be on the throne of our lives. You see, what we see in this letter, in these few verses, uh, John exposes here, two paths that we can go down in the Christian walk. It's the path of God-trusting, loving sacrifice, abandonment of self. So it's putting God first, following that which is of him and for him, or the path of self-preservation. Now, of course, the world only knows of self-preservation, pushing themselves forward, always looking out for number one. But you see, one of those options enthrones God, and the other one enthrones ourselves. I've said many times, there are two thrones that are mentioned in scripture. And if you understand those two thrones, you'll understand, certainly in, a, in a, an elementary level, everything in scripture. One throne is the throne of David. If you understand about the throne of David, you'll understand about Israel, why Israel were called into existence, why God made the promises to Israel, and ultimately who is going to sit on that throne of David, which explains what we're seeing going on in the world with the world governments doing what they're doing and all the challenges. So the throne of David is pivotal to understanding the world and the world systems. The other one is the throne in your own heart. There's two thrones, the throne of David and the throne in your own heart. And if you understand that and you understand that Jesus Christ is the one that needs to be given freedom to sit on that throne of your heart, then you will start to grow as a believer. All the time you want to sit on that throne and be in control, you will start and hinder your own spiritual growth. So I want to take you through a portion in the Old Testament, um, lessons in servanthood. Uh, you know, we are as believers to be servants. 
The problem is often we want to take the lead and don't trust God. I'll just read this to you and I'll comment on it at the end. This is from Second Samuel chapter 16. It's just following on from the time when David was forced to flee Jerusalem because Absalom, his son, has kind of like taken over. There's been this kind of coup, as it were, and David has to flee. As we read this from 2 Samuel 16, picking up verse 5. And when King David came to Baharim, behold, thence came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera. He came forth and cursed still as he came. And he cast stones at David and are all the servants of King David. And all the people and all the mighty men were on his right side and on his left. And thus said Shimei when he cursed, Come out, come out, thou bloody man, O thou man of Belial. The Lord has returned upon thee all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose stead thou hast reigned. And the Lord has delivered the kingdom into the hand of Absalom thy son, and behold, thou art taken in thy mischief, because thou art thy bloody man. Thou then said Abishi, the son of Zerah, the, unto the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over, I pray thee, and take off his head. And the king said, What have I to do with thee, you sons of Zariah? So let him curse. Because the Lord has said unto him, Curse David. Who shall say then? Who shall then say, Wherefore has he done so? And David said to Abishai and to his servants, Behold, my son, which came forth, of my bowels seeketh my life. How much more now may this Benjamite do it? Let him alone, let him curse, for the Lord has bidden him. It may be that the Lord will look on my affliction, and that the Lord will requite me good for his cursing this day. And as David and his men went by the way, Shimei went along on the hillside over against him and cursed as he went, and threw stones at him and cast dust. And the king and all the people that were with him came weary and refreshed themselves there. Just want to note that last line. David could have retaliated. David could have acted and tried to silence this voice and stop him speaking. But no, David chooses just to let it go. David had his confidence in the Lord and he wasn't concerned about fighting these kind of battles. He's saying, you know what, if the Lord's called him here, if this is of the Lord, you know, let him say what he's got to say. David's position, David's calling, if you remember, was clearly of the Lord. When Samuel goes and visits the family down in Bethlehem and Jesse calls his sons and none of them are are the ones that God had chosen. And of course, Samuel's told, yeah, the Lord doesn't look at the outward appearance. He looks at the heart. And eventually they call for David. David's called and in front of his brethren, he is anointed to be the king of Israel. David knew that. David didn't have to prove it. He didn't have to defend it. He knew that God was in control. In fact, when David gets to one of the lowest points in his life, he actually comes out with this incredible statement that he encouraged himself in the Lord. Everyone else abandoned him, but David encouraged himself in the Lord. Oswald Chambers makes another comment that I thought was uh, worth sharing. He says, another thing that distracts us in our passion for vindication, sorry, is our passion for vindication. St. Augustine prayed, Oh Lord, deliver me from this lust of always vindicating myself. Such a need for constant vindication destroys our soul's faith in God. Don't say, I must explain myself, or I must get people to understand. Our Lord never explained anything. He left the misunderstandings or misconceptions of others to correct themselves. Let me ask you a question. Do you trust God that much? You know, regardless of what people say about you, regardless of whether they challenge you or say that, you know, you don't have any right to do this or say this or whatever. 
Do you trust God? Are you that confident in your standing in God that you don't care what man thinks? Goes back to our verse for the week. You know, this account in Second Samuel continues. And then we get to the occasion when David returns to Jerusalem after all this is over and Absalom is now uh, dead and so on. It says, so the king returned and came to Jordan and Judah came to Gilgal to go to meet the king, to conduct the king over Jordan. So they're getting ready to welcome the king back into Jerusalem. And we've told, and Shimei, the son of Gera, a Benjamite, so this is an individual again who'd been cursing before, which was of uh, Bahrim, hasted and came down with the men of Judah to meet King David. And there were a thousand men of Benjamin with him. And Ziba, the servant of the house of Saul, and his 15 sons and his 20 servants with him, and they went over Jordan before the king. And they went over a ferry boat to carry over the king's household and to do what he thought good. And Shimei, the son of Gera, fell down before the king as he was come over Jordan and said unto the king, Oh, let not my lord impute iniquity unto me. Neither do thou remember, sorry, neither do thou remember that which thy servant did perversely the day that my lord the king went out of Jerusalem, that the king should take it to his heart. For thy servant uh, doth know that I have sinned. Therefore, behold, I am come uh, the first this day of all the house of Joseph to go down to meet my Lord, the king. Do you see how the Lord worked in this situation? David trusted that God was in control and he wasn't going to try and defend himself. And as a result, we see this complete reversal on this individual. Now, as it happens later on, Solomon, when he comes to the throne, deals with this individual. You can read on uh, and you can find out everything that happened to him. But David was prepared to trust God. Such an important lesson here. And, you know, we've got these two examples in third John here. We've got this wonderful uh, character that we're being introduced to, Gaius, who clearly loves God, who wants to serve, wants to give up his right to himself. And then you've got Diotrephes, who was so concerned about his own position. David trusted God. We need to have that same mindset that we don't worry about trying to vindicate ourselves as Oswald Chambers quotes from um, Augustine and so on. Let's go on and read verse 11. John now says to Gaius, beloved, follow not that which is evil, but that which is good. In other words, don't follow after his example. He that doeth good is of God, but he that doeth evil has not seen God very clear statement that you know this individual by his fruits clearly demonstrates that God is not the first in his life he is still on the throne of his own heart it says uh, Demetrius now this is another individual we're introduced to now has good report of all men out of the truth itself yea and we also bear record and ye know that our record is true as John said, look, you, you know that what I'm saying is true. You trust me. Well, Demetrius has a good report. Some think that Demetrius could have been the individual who carried the letter and delivered it to Gaius. And so John is just giving this word of commendation saying, look, you can trust him. He's got a good report of all men. What a great statement. I mean, and see the contrast now with Demetrius um, uh, or the contrast previously uh, that we've we've just seen there with Diotrephes. Uh, compared to Demetrius, uh, who has this good report. And of course, that good report is a qualification of one's spiritual authority, according to 1 Timothy 3, 7 and elsewhere, to have a good report amongst those who are both within the church and outside of the church. You know, it's important to note that we all give a report 
by the way we live. You know, you're not exempt from this. You will be giving a report even now to those around you, to your people in your family, to those you work with, to those you have time to mix with, mingle with, whether it be online or however at the moment. You know, and it's either a good report or it's a bad report. And again, Jesus said it's by their fruits, you'll know them. You know, what is your report? What is the others seeing you? You know, are you still clamoring for self uh, to be in control, to be the one that is dictating what goes on around you in your life, in your family? Or are you surrendering and letting God take the throne? Verse 13, the last verse says, I have many things to write, but I will not with ink and pen write unto thee. But I trust that I shall shortly see thee and we shall speak face to face. Uh, again, this is uh, for us so pertinent, isn't it? You know, lots of things we want to share and talk about, but hopefully it's not going to be long and we're going to get to meet together again face to face. But then John ends with this. Peace be to thee. Our friends salute thee. Greet the friends by name. This is a great encouragement. This is a great blessing. Our friends salute you. You know, this is this Gaius who's been written to saying, you know, look, those that are here that know you, that love the Lord, they send their greetings to you and greet those that are there as well by name. There's an interesting quote I read by a man by the name of George Morrison. I believe it was Scott. Uh, he said this, Peace is the possession of adequate resources. <laughs> That's quite interesting. Quite an interesting take on what peace is. You know, for many in the world, that is the case. You know, peace for them is if you've got enough, then you're at peace. If everything is well, then you're at peace. Chuck Misler, in response to that, said this, The believer can enjoy peace because he has adequate resources in Jesus Christ. You see, you've got to know your position in Christ. Know who you are. Know your calling in Christ. It then doesn't matter what man says. I pray you've been blessed and encouraged by those things this morning. Just again, I'd encourage you to read through that letter. There's so much in it. It's only a short little letter, but a lot there to bless us and to speak to our hearts. Next week, Lord willing, we're going to move into a study of the book of Jude. So I just encourage you to read ahead. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we thank you for this opportunity this morning just to share these things, uh, Lord, just to look at what your word teaches in regard to the attitudes that we can have. Lord, we can either be like Gaius, we can have that love for you, willingness to surrender our own right to ourselves and to serve and to be a minister to others, to bless and encourage, Lord, with no opinions or uh, any uh, agendas of our own to promote. Lord, or we can be like Diotrephes, who loves to have the preeminence, we're told. Lord, loves to push themselves forward, cares about their own plan, their own agenda, what other people think of them, how they're perceived. Oh, Father, help us not to worry about what man thinks, but to be secure and assured in our position and our standing in you. Oh, Father, speak to our hearts these things. We pray this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.